New York City's saturated with advertisements. They're on buses, in the subways, atop taxis, along roadways. But as clever as it may be, the latest Kenneth Cole ad along the West Side Highway is not what catches the attention of acclaimed photographer and urban documentarian Frank Jump. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. For two decades, Jump's been documenting so-called ghost signs in the city. These ads from a bygone era are visible but often overlooked. And for Jump, they're also a metaphor for his own long survival with HIV. Several of Jump's photographs are included in a new book called Fading Ads of New York City. Jump's with us this morning in the studio. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for asking me to come. You've been documenting fading ads in New York City for some two decades now. How did it all get started for you? Well, it was all kind of um, by chance. I went back to college um, in in my middle to late 30s to finish my bachelor's. Um, I figured it would be a good time to do it. And I took a documentary photography class because I wanted to gear my degree towards documentary filmmaking. I was a composer, and I wanted to make um, soundtracks for documentary films. So I figured the best thing to do would be take a composition class, because most documentary films use a still f- f- photograph, and then they pan over it with that, you know, Burns effect. And um, I took this class, and um, before I knew it, I was at the New York Historical Society with 24 of my images, and... Um, my teacher was rather surprised and 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 happy for me. Um, he told us, "Hit the pavement, you know, go out, try to get your work, you know, in a show." And um, I came back to him, and he, I said, "I've got a show at the New York Historical Society." He <laughs> says, "No, you don't." I said, "Yes, I do." He said, "Get it in writing." Do so. <laughs> so I went and I got a press release from them, and um, I faxed that to the New York Times, and they surprised the heck out of me, and they published me on the front page of the Metro section. I think it was the week they went color. Wow. They published the uh, Ricketts Blue ad, which is you know such a pretty ad. Ricketts uh, Blue was a laundry whitener, right, mm-hmm. dating back to the 1850s? Yeah, well, it started in the 1850s over in England um, in Hull. Uh, they just figured out how to synthesize ultramarine. Uh, for years, it was used... It was, um, made by grinding down lapis lazuli, which is pretty expensive. So really only rich people could afford to have white clothes. And what it really does is it blue, it makes a blue tint to the white so that it gets rid of that kind of yellowishness from the bleach. And um, when they synthesized ultramarine, some French guy did it. I think his name was Guimet. And um, this um, company in, in Hall, England started they were, I think, originally a, a starch company, and they started synthesizing it and creating this product, which became a, a really a very large, largely marketed product. I even think it's sold in other parts of the world still. It's still sold? Yeah. Where did you discover this ad for Ricketts Blue in New York City? Well, believe it or not, my professor told us, uh, his name is Mel Rosenthal, and he's a uh, an accomplished uh, photographer himself, he said, you got to start where you're most comfortable, and that's where where you're from. 
So start at home. Queens? Uh, well, I was in, living in Brooklyn. Okay, at the time. But yeah. you're from Queens originally. I'm from Queens originally, yeah. You know, just start in your neighborhood. Look around. Now, I my first ad I photographed was Omega Oil, and that was in Harlem. I had lived in Harlem, and a friend of mine in my class didn't feel comfortable walking around with his camera by himself. And I said, Arthur, you're black. You could walk around Harlem with a camera by yourself. This was when? In the late 1990s? 97, I okay. would say. And I lived in Harlem in 87, 88. Had the most incredible time, the time of my life, really, when I was living in Harlem. But anyway, I was living on Washington Avenue in Clinton Hill, and my sister was up visiting from Virginia for a week, and she had gotten a flat. So I said, oh, I know a couple of places down on the way towards uh, Brooklyn Museum. They have a couple of flat fixes. And she, I had already started the, pro the project, and she knew I was, like, really into it. And then she turned around, and she goes, well, did you get that one? And I turned around, and there was Records Blue. And I'm like, oh, my God. So uh, we started shooting it, and... Um, she said, well, why don't you take it from the side? And that was the shot that um, really kind of launched my career. Now, you just said Records Blue. Did Records you mean Blue. It was Records Blue, not yeah. Omega Oil. Yeah, Omega Oil. I mean, it was my first sign. It's probably, and it's still there, which is, you know, a testament to the survival of these signs. But Records Blue um, really was the one that kind of gave me name recognition so Omega Oil was your first sign, that mm -hmm. sign still in Harlem today. Right. What was Omega Oil? I would call it the Bengay of the turn of the century. You know, it had a wintergreen smell. Um, the bottles were really cute. You know, if you had a back pain, it was basically, it felt hot probably on your skin and then cool. So... Um, they had went, they ran into some trouble with the FDA uh, eventually, and I think they got closed, but um, it, I would call it a snake oil. So once you noticed that first sign for Omega Oil and you photographed it, did you just start to suddenly notice these signs all over the city when perhaps you were walking by them all the time and never noticed them before? It was like a veil was lifted from my my eyes. It was incredible. And then, you know, then you start like tripping and you start looking at bricks and saying, oh, wow, I, I could see words there and, and there aren't. But you see the whole world through that lens after you start looking for them. After a while, also, you start being able to decipher things that most people can't because you just you kind of fill in the blanks. And using Photoshop today, you, you, you could do that a lot uh, with your computer. But if you know how to adjust your eyes, you could actually start reading some of these faded um, words and figuring it out, you know, right there and then. It's actually better to do it while you're still there at the site than to take the photograph home uh, and look at it because there's always ways you can turn and look at different angles in the light. Uh, if it's rained, it's also a better time to look at these signs. But it's really best to, to stand there while you're there and look at it and try to figure out what it is rather than to take it home. How many ads have you photographed since starting this project in the 90s? Oh, there's so many. I mean, the slide collection alone is uh, over 5,000, I would say upwards to maybe 10,000 slides. Um, and then when I went digital, um, 
you know, it's just really countless. I I couldn't even begin, but it's definitely in the in the tens of thousands. So long before this book, though, Fading Ads of New York City, you had the website. Right. Yeah. The most of the images that are in the book um, I had by 1998. There are a few in there that are. I think around 2000, but it spans a, a, just a three-year period when I began the um, the fading ad campaign, is what I called it. Uh, I didn't even know they were called ghost signs, and then when I found out that they were called ghost signs, I kind of recoiled from that term because I had already started seeing these signs as a metaphor for my own survival, So I um, and I don't believe in ghosts. You were diagnosed with HIV in your mid-20s? Yeah, I was 26 when I found out that I was actually positive since I was 24. I was part of a blood study. And uh, they were able to retroactively test my blood back to um, the mid-80s. And they found out that I seroconverted between April and August of 1984. And uh, I can pinpoint that period to becoming very sick. I remember I was in San Francisco and had 106 fever and it was pretty awful. And I kind of knew then that I'd gotten the virus, even though we really didn't know much about it back then. And they didn't know much about it by the time I was diagnosed in 86 either. Basically, I was told I had a few good years left. So I took my credit cards and I made sure I did. I went shopping. I'm sure. <laughs> but here you are, having yeah. to pay those bills back, huh? Oh, uh, well, that's, that's, that's a whole other story. <laughs> so how exactly do you see your health, your life, as a reflection of this project? Well, I mean, I'm 52. I'll be 52 in March. Um, I never expected to live this long. And I've never expected to live this long and be so relatively in good health. Uh, although I had a bout of um, rectal cancer in, in 2000 when I was 40, I really have never had much of an issue with HIV health-wise. So I've watched many, 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 many people die. I mean, it's just, I can't even begin to count. So, I mean, we, I even have... Um, address books with telephone numbers that I just stapled shut because everybody in it are, are gone. So I I see this project and initially saw the project as a metaphor for my own unexpected long life. And then it started taking on other meanings for me. Um, it started, you know, when a sign would disappear, it would mean it would be like a friend had gone. So it kind of had that parallel for me as when I lost friends from AIDS. And then some people live with HIV silently, and they don't want to be noticed. And some of these signs just kind of, you know, linger on the side of a, of a northern exposure, and then they try to get by unnoticed, and then one day you realize, oh, wow, there it is. And um, so it took on different metaphors for me. But to this day, this project just pr- keeps propelling me forward uh, as an artist, as a photographer, um, it's not the only thing I photograph, but I um, certainly when we travel, my, my husband and I, Vincenzo, we just bought an RV and we took a cross-country trip two years ago and it was just 
that's what we do. <laughs> do you photograph fading ads outside of New York City as oh, well? Yeah. You do. Yeah, I've got lots of them from the south of France and Barcelona, uh, the Netherlands um, was my first. Um, Amsterdam, in particular, was the first um, foreign country I photographed signs. London, and it, after doing my London shots, I look back at them now and I see that a friend of mine, Sam Roberts, who has a, um, a site called U- Ghost Ads UK, Ghost Signs UK. How is it that in a city like New York, where things are forever changing, that these ads did manage to survive so long from the mid-1800s, mm-hmm. some of them? Well, I think that the changing aspect of New York is what kind of keeps these ads coming back to the surface. You know, a sign can be painted in between two buildings. It was painted on the side of a building, and then they built a building up against it. And then years later, they tear the building down, and lo and behold, you see that one day they were advertising corsets on on the corner of what was once the corner of that block. And, you know, the corner just kept on moving forward. Uh, Records Blue was one of those signs. Um, the guy who owned the building who that Records Blue was on heard that they were tearing all the buildings down next to him, and he was afraid that they were going to tear his building down. So he videotaped the whole thing, and each building that came down revealed another sign, and he has it all on videotape. Wow. I actually have the archive as well. When we do the movie, it'll be great. The movie, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I understand the painters, the people who painted these ads uh-huh. back in the day, were known as wall dogs. Mm-hmm. Have you had the opportunity to meet any of these wall dogs? I have indeed. And I've been getting, now that the book has been published, I'm getting phone calls from wall dogs in nursing homes across New York. And uh, and I've had uh, running relationships with um some of the wall dogs since the show at New York Historical Society, uh, the Mac um, sign company in particular, the Middleton brothers um, are well documented in this book, uh, Concord um, sign painting company as well. And I just met the descendants of the Concord company. Um, one of the signs on the, in this book uh, for um, uh, Fortunoffs is painted by the uh, Concord Company. So um, I'm meeting more of the family members of, of Wall Dogs. I mean, many of them are gone. Uh, but there's still signs being painted today. It's not a dead art. It's um, it's be- it's alive and well, and it's living through companies like Colossal Media. And there's a huge sign that's always being redone on uh, 34th Street and 8th Avenue. Um, every week it's a new sign. And it's probably one of the largest wall signs in the world, I would imagine. So um, the um, the practice is still around. And um, fortunately for people 100 years from now, they'll be looking at some of the old, uh, I guess... Um, Verizon and, uh, <laughs> and, and and cell phone ads of of, of um, the two thousands. Have you come across any signs in New York City today that use vintage ads as a model? Yeah, um, Colossal Media in particular um, uses a lot of, of that style for liquor ads. I think they have a great Doers um, ad that they do. I've seen it 
in um, Williamsburg, and I've seen it elsewhere, I think, um, on Canal Street, where they just, you know, they try to m mimic the old styles. And I think those old styles are so pleasurable to look at. You know, they're aesthetically, they're, they're, they're pretty. They're not garish. They, they have great fonts. And, you know, for, for people who really are into text... Uh, and graphics. Um, it's really eye candy. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM. It's WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. Our guest this morning is Frank Jump. He's a photographer who for some 20 years has been documenting old-timey ads. Several of his images are in a new book called Fading Ads of New York City. Sometimes preservation groups will come in, arts organizations will come in, and they will fix up fading signs. Mm -hmm. They'll repaint them. What do you think about that? Because they are then, in some ways, destroying your work. They're taking away the fading part. Right. I, I mean, I could understand where some towns have, um, you know, maybe a Woolworth sign that, like, faded almost into imperceptibility, and they want to, you know, preserve it, so they'll have it repainted, and, you know, it kind of adds to the ambiance of their town, you know. Again, like you just said, I, I'd prefer if you just leave them alone and let them fade, because um, once you start painting them, you've changed it. One of the analogies I draw is the, uh, the Sistine Chapel, you know, when they went to redo that, and I remember seeing it after it was done, and it didn't even seem real to me because it was so vivid and alive, and um, a lot of that paint was new paint. So uh, you're really not looking at what the artist did. You're looking at uh, what the um, restoration people did, and um, it's an argument we could, you know, have, uh, you know, for a while. But um, I think they're just best left alone. You're also pretty good now with being able to identify a fake, right? Because sometimes here in New York City, people will paint ads up to make them look like old ads for movie shoots. Right. You'll see where on a sign from rain and, and uh, the sun, um, and there are certain telltale signs of um, of a sign being in between a building where there was a lot of uh, water coming through and you'll see like a washout in some areas but some of the signs that were not covered by a building and they're still very vivid are kind of um, obviously um, been painted to look like a sign uh, there's one in Tribeca that we um, through the network of um, bloggers we all figured out that it was probably painted for a movie drop and the planners peanuts ad in Ridgewood Queens um, is much too red and vivid to be um, a sign that faces the sun actually faces the, the rising sun those signs you know within 30 years wash out so what does the term pentimento mean you use that term in the book well I, I got it from Lillian Hellman and when you see Another ad coming through underneath um, an a, a ad that's covering it, you kind of um, get that effect of, well, some people call it um, palimpsest and, and uh, chiaroscuro, and um, I like calling them pentimentos. It accentuates the painterly 
uh, aspect of these signs. I mean, they are works of art, and 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 if I had a building in in, in New York City, I would prefer one that had a fading ad on it. I think because it just kind of um, points to the history of New York. It really reminds you that the city has had a life and has lived, and it, a lot of young people today they they see the world, you know, and they live it in the moment, and they don't really realize what it took to get to this point. Not that we have to constantly look back and, and dwell in the past, but you know, it's really hard to move forward without looking back. Are fading ads more prominent in certain New York City neighborhoods than others? Yeah, you would I mean there they were meant to be seen usually by um travelers. So if um you're crossing over the Brooklyn Bridge, you're bound to see these fading ads because um, people like um, Charles Fletcher, for Fletcher's Castoria, they advertise heavily uh, near bridges, near elevated train lines. They were meant to be seen by people on trains. So you, if you you know there was a depot around uh, a town, then you're, you're bound to find these fading ads. Do these fading ads in any way shed light on the city's population? at the time they were put up, including its ethnic makeup, for instance? Sure. I mean, um, like I mentioned the Fortunoff sign earlier, I mean, it it kind of illustrates the whole phenomenon of white flight. Back in the late 50s and 60s, um, white people were moving out to Long Island. They were, um, they were worried about their property values, I imagine. Um, we were renters, so... Um, we 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 really weren't as concerned, you know. We didn't have an idea. My mother's from the Netherlands, and she couldn't understand why people weren't comfortable living where they were living because of their neighbors. She thought it was kind of ridiculous, actually. Um, but um, one day we had white neighbors, and the next day we didn't. And um, so you'll see, like uh, a lot of these signs for older businesses that have moved, say, to Baldwin, Long Island, or Westchester or Staten Island were once in these neighborhoods. But it also shows you that services were also at a minimum for a lot of the um, the African-American community that moved into these neighborhoods because you had all these people moving out. You say in the book that in all the years you've been documenting vintage advertising on brick, you still get exhilarated when you find a Coca-Cola ad. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, Coca-Cola is like the the ultimate logo, you know, it's got the this great old-fashioned font, you know, the Spencerian script. I guess when I was growing up, I w- the logo that really got me was the Yes logo from the band Yes, and I was always trying to like draw that on my my book covers, and um, I could imagine that if I was fifty, sixty years. Young, um, born sixty years uh, before that, I would have been doing Coca Cola on my my book cover because it's just such a great looking um, logo. You talk about Coke ads in a chapter titled "A Coke and a Smoke." Mm-hmm. What did the ads for cigarettes look like way back when? Well, the the reason why I entitled that chapter "Coke and a Smoke" because um, some of my pentimentos, as I um, call them. Uh, are for Mecca smokes, and then you'll see a, a Coca-Cola ad coming through it, or vice versa. 
Yeah, back in uh, the turn of the century, they started marketing cigarettes in a different way. They started um, printing out these like kind of like baseball cards, but for for cigarettes, and they would put them inside the cigarettes, which really w- would entice young smokers. I remember when I was about 12, they banned um, cigarette ads from t- television. So that was the first ban. And, um, you know, you'll still see cigarette ads, on I think, on billboards, but you won't see them painted anymore. I think uh, one of the ads that you have for cigarettes in the book, cigarettes were five cents. Right. Yeah. And they used exotic Turkish blends. I could immediately associate that with filterless um, back then. Yeah, the the um, tobacco industry's uh, history is, is, is written all over the sides of walls here in New York. A fading ad that you captured, one that's included in the book, brought to life the story of someone named J.J. Friel. Mm-hmm. A pretty interesting character, huh, in New York City history? What's amazing about this ad for me is I've known his name for about 15 years now and never knew who he was. And I would do search. I remember doing initial searches on the Internet for him. And, of course, there, there wasn't Google back then. And um, there was little about this person that I could find. How uh, did you know the name, by the way? Well, I photographed several of the Friel ads. Um, he had a loan company. Um, he was, I guess, a, initially a pawnbroker and then became a, um, a loan specialist. And uh, when he first came to this country, it's the typical immigrant story, $5 you know, in your pocket, maybe a dollar in your pocket. And um, he's from Ireland, and he started digging ditches um, as soon as he came. And he was digging a ditch in front of this beautiful building on um, in, on Willoughby in, in um, I guess, Bed-Stuy area. And he looked at his foreman and said, you know, one day I'm going to own this building. And uh, he said, well, you sit down because you're, you're starting to get, you know, heat, heat prostration and you need to take, you know, drink some water. And, and um, he wound up becoming uh, a millionaire and buying that house. And I learned all of this through his family members who were still alive. It was about a week before I, I was um, handing in the manuscript. I had a 30-day deadline for 56,000 words, and it was the last sign I was writing about. Wow. And I got a, a message, on my, a comment on my blog from a family member, and, you know, where is this sign exactly? We want to maybe restore it. And I said, please call me immediately. And he got me in touch with his aunts, who uh, were the, um, the granddaughters of Friel, and they told me the whole family story over the phone. Did you encounter any particular challenges simply photographing these fading ads while you were doing it? Some of them are in hard-to-reach spots, I would imagine, or hard-to-photograph spots. Well, when you're standing on the street, you take a shot of a of a sign that may be high up, and you get that very you know oblique angle of that sign. And I I've always wanted to get you know capture them in a way that maybe other people haven't. And sometimes that means you need to get on a roof of a building. And not all buildings in New York are accessible. So you have to talk your way in at times and lie and say you have an appointment. Because if you make the appointment, if you go through it, 
you know, all those channels the, the way you're supposed to, chances are you're never going to get that sign. I just recently did that again. I got into a building on in um, Brighton Beach, uh, got on top of a, an apartment building and took a sign of Belvedere Apartments. And, you know, if I would have called this the super. I probably never would have gotten into the building. But I held the door for a guy with uh, a lot of grocery bags. All right, said, so you did your you. part. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is this a never-ending project? I mean, can you just keep going and going? Because as you mentioned before, sometimes when buildings come down, these ads are then miraculously visible again. Well, New York is a never-ending process. It's a, a the, the building and reconstruction and uh, renovation of New York is constant. And um, as new buildings go up and old buildings come down, um, there's going to be more ads revealed. And uh, it's 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 exciting to watch. Um, yeah, I think this will probably be something I'll do to the day I die. It's just one of those um, projects that once you, the bug bites you, it, 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 you just keep on doing it. What's your website? I've got two. I've got the Fading Ad Campaign website, which is frankjump.com, and it has a sister mirror site, fadingad.com. Those both had 48 images each on them. And then uh, when I went back for my second master's in instructional technology, we had to create a blog for one of my classes. So I said, well, if I'm going to create a blog, then this is going to be the blog. And um, so now I have the fadingad.com forward slash fadingadblog. The book is Fading Ads of New York City. Frank Jump, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Fading Ads of New York City is published by History Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Julie Clark. Have a great weekend. Mm-hmm.